0: Welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode number 36. Uh, I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, and we are Amateur Astronomers. And this is a series of podcasts we are doing to sort of chronicle the conversations that we have on amateur astronomy, and just sort of bring some light entertainment to uh, people out there. So
1: how was your week, Shane? It was good. The weather was great. I was uh, out observing three times. Oh, wow. And... Not all of them were good, but it was nice to be out. <laughs> How about you?
0: Yeah, I get out a couple times, I guess. So, uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we'll start with you. I didn't know you get out so often, so that's really awesome. Uh, what nights were you able to get out?
1: Uh, Monday, uh, let me think about this now. Thursday, I think it was. Yeah. And then last night, uh, so that would be Saturday night. Nice. Um, yeah, the the first two, Monday, Thursday, were pretty decent. Last night was probably some of the worst seeing I've, I've encountered. It was, it was really bad. Yeah. It looked bad. Um, yeah. Like I went out at about nine o'clock cause the moon was almost full and Jupiter was, well, last night was that kind of a triangle between the moon, Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah. Uh, kind of a neat alignment and took a look at Jupiter around nine o'clock and it was awful. It was boiling. Um, like some of the aberrations were unlike anything I've even seen before. It was just crazy. I think Uh, I thought, Oh, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, I think there was some smoke in the atmosphere. I was looking at the uh, upper atmosphere uh, weather reports and I think it's smoke from Siberia has, has now uh, drifted our way a little bit and you could even smell it a little bit. So that That could be responsible, because even even the moon looked uh, had a little bit of a strange cast to it
1: <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was looking at Jupiter, I thought, "Oh, you know, I wonder what it would look like if I took my contrast booster filter off, and then when when I looked, i didn't have it on. <laughs> But you know how that filter does introduce just a little bit of a, like, kind of a hue to to the planet? Yeah, it had that
0: already. It
1: had that, yeah. Yeah. So that explains it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I, I left the telescope outside, and I went out about every 30 to 45 minutes to see if seeing improved. And it improved marginally, but not enough for any sort of useful observing it was just awful. So I'll scrap that observation report. There's not much to talk about Saturday night. Um but my other two sessions uh were almost entirely focused on Jupiter and the moon. Nice. Um a little bit of Saturn um and a little bit of a double star that I'll talk about as well. Okay. So Jupiter, I decided to use the 76 millimeter Takahashi without the extender this time. Okay, so this uh, is a
0: little refractor, just about three inches operating at F7.5 or
1: 7.5. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I wanted to see, well, what I really wanted to do was uh, a little bit of a test with those uh, five millimeter eyepieces, uh, the TMB, uh, super monocentric, and then the, uh, Pentax XO that you lent me. And, um, with the extender, that's an awful lot of magnification. So yeah. running it in its native focal length, um, you know, that gives me just around a hundred times, uh, magnification, which is, a you know, a little easier to get away with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and that's uh, a nice
0: power for a three inch, in my opinion, Sort of that one hundred to one twenty something is that's the real sweet spot for the for the seventy six millimeter or three inch telescope.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the best views that night were with my nine millimeter orthoscopic. Um, seeing was maybe in the middle of the scale to edging on the the good side, but it wasn't outstanding. I wouldn't even call it really good. It was margin like it was kind of an average good night that you and I kind of are familiar with for these parts. Um, The Northern Equatorial Band is so dark, you know, compared to the Southern Band right now. Um, And that really stood out again, uh, not just darker, but also uh, a lot thicker. Um, The Great Red Spot, though, was out on Thursday night, which uh, followed for a little while. Um, Again, because of the seeing not being super steady it wasn't like you could just kind of watch the great red spot. It sort of came and went, um, at least with the like defined separation from the equatorial band. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then I switched to the five millimeter, uh, TMB monocentric and the Pentax. And I went back and forth with those for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I looked at Jupiter as well as the moon. And, you know, you're splitting hairs with those two eyepieces in terms of performance. Um, now, with with better seeing, perhaps you'd be able to to identify more differences, but I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. The TMB, I think the eye relief listed for that is 4.3 millimeters. So exceptionally tight. Uh, however, I have no problem. Like, it feels so comfortable. Uh, just to, I have to take my glasses off, but like, I don't have to get my eye that close to the eyepiece to take in the entire field of view because it's only 30 degrees or 34 degrees, something like that. So my eyelashes don't even touch the eyepiece, which is strange. You know, you would think 4.3 millimeter eye relief, like, you know, your eye, your eyelid almost has to touch the glass. Um, But it's very, very comfortable. Nice. Now the Pentax, you can't see that whole field of view and your eyelid almost has to touch the glass to see it all, but it's a much wider field of view. Like I think yeah. that's a 45 ish range, maybe something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think when you back off uh, like kind of like your, your eye is far enough away. So your eyelashes aren't touching the pantex, text. You're probably taking in a similar field of view as the TMB. It yeah. just feels different because you can't see the field stop. Yeah. Um, the nice thing with the Pentax with that wider field of view is you can watch the planet or moon, you know, drift across for a little bit longer without having to nudge the telescope, which was nice.
0: Yeah. I guess it's got about what, like about a 50% larger field of view.
1: Yeah, it's substantial. Um, so that helped. The, on, on Jupiter I felt like they were almost identical. Um, I did feel like on the moon, the TMB gave me just a slighter boost in contrast from is some that the dark so. regions. Yeah, but it's hard to say, right? The conditions weren't great. Um, so, how many how many uh, glass
0: elements from the TMB is it? Three, three. Yeah, and the Pentax is five. I think, if I recall.
1: Yes, I believe you're right.
0: Though I think I think is the TMB. It's just three. There's just three, and then with the Pentax, I think there's there's three. Um, elements like there's three, uh, sort of groups of the glass and there's like sort of two or are, are two and then one is, is standalone if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah. So it's kind of, I don't know, I don't know how that would impact it or not, but I think you're at least dealing with another one or two, uh, glass to air surfaces, which I think is where, where any kind of loss of contrast would come in, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. pretty remarkable. If- yeah.
1: With the TMB, the three elements are cemented together. So you only have two, okay. two surfaces touching oh, wow. air, the top okay. and the bottom. Yeah. Um, and you're right. From what I've read, when you have the the air and glass uh, surface is where you lose you know, some light transmission. Um, now, again, a- anybody that had either one of these eyepieces in their collection would be exceptionally well served. They're, they were fantastic. Uh, picking one, I think really probably would come down mostly to preference on kind of that feel when you're, when you're either seeing the field stop in the TMB or not seeing it in the Pentex. Like I think for some people it drives them crazy not to see the field stop. I'm so Um, used to
0: it as, as a glasses on wear, I'm like, so used to not seeing the field stop anyway, that yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to me.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I think I'll run them side by side a few more times. And I also want to throw in my Nikon five millimeter orthoscopic. Um, okay. I was ahead. getting
0: worried there. You're going to say the Nikon nav, which, uh, which I've, uh, seconded from you and, and I'm very, um, hopeful that you'll, you'll allow that to remain in, in my uh, grubby little hands for a little while longer. <laughs>
1: yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can hang on to that. Um, and you, you can
0: keep the, the Pentax XO as collateral.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um so then the last thing i'll talk about was uh the double double star yeah that's exciting yes. so i talked about this on one of our recent podcasts can you just
0: do um, me like a small favor maybe and i'm thinking of, i'm thinking of this you, you you'll often chime in can you just explain what a double star is again ah, for maybe yeah. People that are, yeah
1: good call so double star is uh kind of a common name for what i what should probably be called multiple star systems um most The majority of the stars in the sky belong to some kind of star system where there'll be one, two, three, maybe even a few more stars that are gravitationally bound and they interact upon each other, uh, usually orbit around each other. And um, from our perspective on Earth can form some interesting, uh, I guess, kind of shapes, if you will, uh, or alignments um some of them are different colors which are really neat to see some of them are um different uh, mag- uh, magnitudes or brightness uh, uh and which make it you know somewhat interesting too if you have a bright one and a real dim one um and then some of them are just really close together or uh maybe have some other variables that make them really challenging to observe. Uh, meaning that a double star can be one of the ultimate tests of either the seeing in the sky or the optics in your telescope. Um, so they're kind of fun to look at. They're not impacted by light pollution. So these are great things to do from your backyard if you live in a city and there's lots of them up there to check out. You know, so, I'm going to say ahead.
0: something just really quick. Cause You've kind of been going on about the doubles for, for a while now, and uh, you know, in in our observing circles anyway. And uh, anyway, doubles are not something that I ever really took much of a look at. And then, uh, so just sort of, you know, leaping from from your uh, conversations and, and mention of them, and then uh, another observer that I know uh, chat to online that's made up a good list um, for the RASC. Um, anyway and and then last year, I put them in my uh, handbook article for the RAC observers handbook and uh, I really enjoyed our double star slash deep sky observing session last uh, last july it was it was a lot of fun um, so they're definitely on my radar and uh, you know in the next podcast we'll we'll talk a little bit about some more so anyway yeah go go ahead there i think if people haven't maybe my maybe I should just mention this if people haven 't really taken Uh, that much of an interest in double stars you really ought to um, because the really neat thing about double stars is that uh, you you really will see these two little stars side by side and you have to get that focus just right but kind of when you get everything dialed in they look like these two little balls next to each other and then you can really see any kind of uh, contrast in color sometimes one will appear very white and the other one blue or one yellow and one white or blue and They're very interesting, more interesting than just what you you might think of as, oh, double stars right off the top of your head, which was always sort of my uh, preconceived notions of them, so you've kind of opened me up to these. So anyway, I won't, I won't eat up any more your your observing report. But uh, well, well, you
1: know, I'll though I'll, i I, think I'll just chime in a little bit of what you said. Uh, I was the same. I always thought double stars sounded like pretty much the most boring thing. That's right. Yeah, I didn't want to say that because
0: I know you're pretty <laughs> enthused about them, and I'm, I'm still not as interested as you. But, uh, but yeah, I kind of thought they sounded a little bit boring.
1: Yeah, but they yeah. aren't.
0: They, they're really
1: cool. Yeah. And, and the reason why I thought, you know what, I need to give these a try is because I do probably 80 to 90% of my observing from the backyard, just due to convenience. Um, So when I found out that you could observe these under light pollution, I thought, well, great. You know, that gives me another project. Um, And then for folks that are kind of interested in like civilian science, um, a number of these double stars uh, really haven't been measured Um, Or haven't been measured in like 100 years. So there, there is a need for people to do some astrophotography and some measurements on these double stars. Um, And if you go to the Washington database of double stars, um, they have a list of like, uh, I think they call it neglected double stars. And you can go through that list. Do they have like a little sad face? Thing? Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, it's, raining, it's raining on them. And, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but anyway, you can do some astrophotography, some measurements of the separation and their angular motion and things like that, and actually contribute to some real science, which wow. I don't do, but I think it's kind of neat if uh, somebody's interested in that. Wow, cool. Anyway, enough of that. Yeah, so what would you look at... Uh- in the past week, as far as... So I mentioned on a podcast a couple episodes ago that in Cygnus, um, one of the arms, uh, I think it's Delta Cygnus, uh, it's a named star. It's Al Fer- Ferraris, I think it's called. Um,
0: that sounds like an Arabic name and, and my, my Arabic is is extremely rough. I do not speak it. Um, yes. So you can, you can probably, you know, just do well by even trying to pronounce some of these names.
1: Yeah, fair enough. It's one of the arms of the cross or, or uh, excuse me, part of the wing of the, the swan. And it's. This uh, is in Cygnus, eh? It is in Cygnus. Yep. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I probably jumped ahead of that.
0: (laughs) Um, We have no notes today. People should know we are, we, we are literally uh, we're into the, the time of the year where um, when it's dark enough to observe, we're out observing and often it's late and, we are not making show notes. We are actually doing astronomy as per the name of the show. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> so I, I was looking, like, what got me onto this one was I was flipping through the, uh, the Will Tyrion and Brian Skiff's Bright Star Atlas. It's, a, it's an atlas that is, you know, I guess kind of viewed as something good for small telescopes or binoculars. It lists this the, the brightest. Cambridge, sorry, is this
0: the Cambridge Atlas? Uh...
1: No, it's Willem Bell.
0: Okay. Wilman Bell. W- right. Bell, sorry. Wilman Bell. Bell. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah. So for, there's only like 10 charts in here. So one chart includes like a huge expanse of the sky. Uh, for each chart, they list deep sky objects, you know, so galaxies, clusters, nebulas. Um, they have some notes about, you know, standout objects or, or names of some of these objects, like, you know, um, M27 is the dumbbell nebula, that kind of stuff. Uh, they talk about the bright stars on the map, double stars, variables, eclipsing variables, pulsating variables, eruptive variables, and other variables. So I was looking at the Cygnus chart under the double stars, and this particular one, Al Ferraris, shows up at what is it here? 2. Point, is it 2.5 or 2.8 arc seconds, which I thought, gee, that is awfully close for a small telescope. Mm. Um, and their magnitudes vary quite a bit. Um, just trying to see what they vary by. Uh, where is it here? 2.9 and 6.3. Uh, so one is quite bright at 2.9 and 6.3 is kind of on the edge of naked eye brightness under a dark sky. Um so the first time I tried to observe this was last week and I couldn't confidently say that I saw it. Seeing wasn't that great. And, um, yeah, I just, I thought I was seeing kind of glimpses of it, uh, but couldn't say for sure. Uh, Thursday night, seeing was a little bit better. Uh, using the five millimeter TMB as well as the Pentax, I was able to pull out the companion star nice and it was just in one of the the um, what do they call it the the rings um oh, like a not a refraction ring but
0: diffraction when you're ring. using what sorry a diffraction ring
1: yeah yeah it was kind of just on the ring itself actually which is uh you know an effect when you look through a refractor telescope using high magnifications but i was definitely able to see it and i was quite pleased with that observation um, but it has, it has me questioning some of the double stars recommended in this Atlas. Cause like there's another pair in here that are 1.8 arc seconds apart. That would be a very challenging observation for a three inch telescope. But yeah. I'll give it a try.
0: The limit, like I just kind of sort of from, from my recollection and then I just kind of confirmed it here. I think like your DAW's limit is around for 76, 1.6. That's probably what you're looking at. Oh,
1: okay. Therefore
0: you're, okay. you're your sort of like, but I mean, you know, that's theoretical. Maybe you can go a little bit better. Right. Most nights, the seeing conditions may not permit it. So, so yeah. So does it, does it, and I haven't seen this Atlas myself. Uh, so does it kind of give you sort of recommended stars per, uh, aperture or how does it work? Or is not, it just that that's for a three inch larger telescope or something?
1: Yeah. Not per aperture. um, I should see if there's not like, there's an introduction that's a couple of paragraphs and I'm just quickly scanning to see if they recommend Aperture in here. I don't see any Aperture recommendations okay. uh, jumping out at me, but uh, you know, maybe if I actually read it in detail. I, I, the reason I bought this is one, one of my many, many times browsing cloudy nights forums, I was looking for an atlas. Oh, here's a little bit more detail. I was looking for an atlas uh, that would be ideal for a small telescope because Mm -hmm. as you know, I have a number of these uh, very old uh, classic telescopes Mm -hmm. and just about all of those are 60 millimeters in aperture. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're quite long focal length, but not very large in terms of the lens size. So I just thought it would be nice to have a paper atlas that really focused on objects that would look good in some of those smaller telescopes. And uh, this one was, was recommended quite a bit by a number of observers. Hmm, cool. Yeah. So anyway, that was my week in the backyard under, you know, dark skies or in quotes dark, you know, as dark as it can get inside of a city.
0: <laughs> well, and the moon's been up too. Yes. So yeah. Let's not. Let's not forget that. So when the moon's up, we're not going out to the dark skies. Anyhow.
1: There you go. So you were observing, I think a couple nights too, you said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I can't remember like my sessions earlier in the week. I I don't know if I just took the binoculars out or what I kind of, yeah, I still get these stitches in my back. So a couple of nights they were bothering me and I just didn't go out. I, I don't even think I looked up. So I was just like, they're just, I think they're coming out now. So that can be a lot of fun. So I have like seven or 10 stitches back there. So it's like quite a few. So anyway, uh, that's sort of enough about back stitches. Um, But I did get out uh, twice in the past day. (laughs) So I got out last night, I was looking at um, that grouping of jupiter uh the moon and saturn that that you mentioned and i had those those seven by 35s that i have that have about a 99 degree field of view and uh, i could just barely fit them in to to the uh to the field of view of those binoculars so i could take in all three of of the uh of these objects i thought that was pretty cool but yeah. I, I wondered. Have you tried um, this grouping? And you could do it again tonight. Is, I don't know. Is it going to be clear tonight if you look? Uh,
1: you know, as of yesterday, I haven't looked. Well, I'll look right now. Mm. Yesterday, the conditions for tonight were not looking too great. Mm. Um, yeah, a few clouds. It says tonight. Uh, yeah,
0: I just wondered if you had the had given the uh, those Nikon super wide field ones a shot on them. But uh,
1: uh, I don't. I don't have those anymore. Oh, you don't. No. What'd you do with those I sold them i couldn't handle the the soft edges um oh. I, like i i don't know I might have got maybe just a bad pair because I would say this like the field was only sharp, maybe at best sixty percent yeah uh, of the way through and and the edges were so bad it like i couldn't focus it out either and you know without losing yeah. the the inner sixty percent I just uh, I, well did you want I, to try I, mine i mean you're ha you well, one time yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so these, these are, uh, 3d printed binoculars that, uh, Shane kind of.
1: Oh, sorry. I thought you meant the Nikon action extremes. My bad. I still oh. have, I still have the ultra wides we made. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wondered if you'd given those a shot on them. Cause ah, I never so thought which, of it. Yeah. Which Nikon action extremes did you have? The eight by forties? No, the 7x35s. seven by 35. Yeah. They are. Yeah. The, the quality control on them. Not great. So the way that I bought mine was I went to and, and I had looked up online that the quality control can vary um, with particularly the 7 x thirty five. The other ones are a little better because Mike went and bought a pair the 8x40s just off the shelf and I think they're a hair ahead. Um, so I went to the Cabela's here and in Saskatoon. I can't remember where I ended up buying them but I went to both and I actually asked them if I could take them all out and test them. And I did. So I went through, I think seven pairs and I picked one. Oof. That's how I picked it. And unfortunately it it has recently um, like sort of gone into the lower quality state. So I am a, a little bit in the market for, for a new pair. And I've been looking at for a pair like, like yours is the 12 by 36. Uh, Canon image stabilized uh, is kind of on my dream uh, list for um, the future. But I think I got to, I think I got to sell some binoculars before I get to, uh, before I get to that point. But anyhow, yeah, I agree. They are soft, but uh, anyhow, yeah, the super low power ones, the two by, what are they? Two by 2.1 or two power by 40 or doesn't matter really. Yeah.
1: Something, something in the forties.
0: Yeah, they're pretty weird looking and they give about a 25 or 30 degree field of view. I thought those would be good. I meant to take those out and look at comet uh uh Neowise when it was mm. up, but uh, I never did get around to it.
1: Yeah, that would have been great. You know, they they essentially provide like bionic nighttime vision cuz at only two times the sky itself isn't super magnified. Right. And with that super wide field of view, it almost feels like you you're not looking through any optics at all. They're they're quite fantastic.
0: Yeah. Although with yeah, it would have been neat to have them on NeoWise. Although I could see I could I could see the tail um I think just as well through the binoculars as I could naked and eye. Now like I said my binoculars have degraded. So I know when I was talking to uh sketch artist Jeremy Perez he was saying that he was able to uh, to see the uh the ion tail pretty good in his in his small binoculars, but I, I wasn't getting it. I think he was using 10 by 50s though, so maybe maybe that just gave him a, a jump and improvement. But uh, anyhow, so yeah, I was able to take that in. But you're right. I I could tell the seeing last night was very poor. And there was also that forest fire smoke, which if I can smell it. I won't set a telescope up because smoke can be damaging to the optics. Mm-hmm. So I, I've had some nights where it otherwise looks good and I just don't set up. And I really don't like it when we go to do like a public outreach event at like a campground. And then they're having like, and sometimes the parks will even do this. You know, I guess there's not much they can do, but they'll often go and light that fire. You know, right, and, yeah. and often we're not even that far from it and, and i remember once I don't, I don't know if you came out to this one with us but uh, it was during near full moon in in west block and uh and we we were setting up and they lit the fire and we're like whoa like we got to move yeah, or I you got to put the that fire out And they were kind of cuz like the park had recently changed staff and that individual really headed in their mind and and i felt bad cuz they were kind of put off they headed in their mind that they would have like the fire right there and we'd kind of be just outside of the circle of people with our telescopes all around, like, you know, unknown to them, like getting blown with smoke and sparks and, you know, like the worst possible thing for telescopes. And so then we moved like, you know, 25 or 30 meters away and they weren't, they were kind of unhappy with that. eh? (laughs) Oh, well.
1: Yeah. Oh, well. And, and, you know, the other thing too, is we've talked, we've talked a lot about dark adaption or your eyes getting adapted to the dark skies. It, it takes thirty minutes, and if you have a fire burning anywhere near you, you will lose that precious time and you'll have to restart your your adaptation to the darkness
0: yeah i I'm just and honestly like although fire can be they can be a great time and the right place in the right time um like you know in my opinion, like down in the grasslands, fire can be extremely dangerous, like you know fire is always dangerous, but in that environment, I'm always like like if there's fires going, like I got my eye on them because I've seen fire take off down there a couple times. Um, like by really innocuous things, there was a farmer cutting a field and he hit a rock and I was about five miles away. And it was like a mushroom cloud. Like it was ridiculous how fast that fire took off. And, you know, it can be very dangerous. Like things can get out of hand down there. And they've had a few fires burn through the park uh, since we've been going down, even not while we were there, but you know, you can, we've seen the results. Um, So like personally, I don't light fires when I'm in in any national park. So I just think that it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, on the dangerous side, but anyway, that's sort of my smokey the bear bit. Um, So yeah, so it wasn't good seeing that was pretty clear to me, but I looked on the forecast and it looked like the wind was going to change direction. And it was gonna settle out by like 2:30 or so. So I set my alarm, and I woke up at 2:30, and I said, "There's no way I'm getting out of bed. It's 2:30 in the morning, and I'm really tired." So I went back to sleep, and I woke up an hour later. Jeez, <laughs> oh, maybe even a little bit longer. So I got I got out of bed at like 10 to 10 to 4. And I walked out and yeah, it was steady. Like I, I was really surprised how steady it was. And I knew that uh, Mars and Venus would be up. And that's what I really, really have been wanting to look at. Okay. And I actually did a sketch. I sent, you, I sent you a text of the sketch and I will correct. There's sort of one error in, in these sketches. Did you see the, the text?
1: I did, yeah, yeah.
0: So the error is the polar cap. I kind of drew it in just because it looked nice like that but it actually it it actually isn't there um you can see if you zoom in on the polar cap of mars there's like a small indentation and i meant to cut it there and it it's sort of it's sort of off to the right it's not like right in that peak area so i gotta i gotta kind of redo the sketch i I, yeah when i did it i kind of like it was kind of coming and going and then it then it after i did the sketch it really steadied up and i could definitely see that i had drawn it slightly the wrong. Um, position. But anyway, so, so I went out and I guess maybe the backstory is, is my, my wife is being giving me a bit of a hard time. I got these three telescopes sitting out, like <laughs> they just sit out cause I use them. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I've had similar experiences with other people before, not, not my spouse. She's a little bit more understanding, but I remember we, we used to rent this land in, when I lived in Ontario for the um, astronomy club. And, and, and the person who owned the land once came to us and said like, I never see you guys up there. Like you're never using it. Like, uh, why, like, you know, I kind of could use this for farming and such like, and it was sort of a rough piece of land, but I think crop prices were were rising and we were like, no, no, we use it all the time, but I never see any lights on up there. You know, kind of, <laughs> we, we thought that was pretty funny, but we had a hard time convincing him that, that indeed we did. Uh, we did use that that land. And it's kind of like the same with my three telescopes sitting out. She's, she's saying, you know, you've got these three telescopes. So, like, you know, do you really need three? And strangely enough, I've been using all three the past month. I was using my 80 millimeter that you worked on to look at the comet. Yep. And uh, I've been using the 100 more than anything else. Uh, it's it's new. It's bigger. It's light. Super portable. Love it. Can't say enough good things about the 100 millimeter half DC. Um, but then I have the 60, which is like my ultimate portable telescope. And it also cools super fast. So I was concerned cause the temperature had dropped to like 11 or 12 degrees and it was still 20 in my house, I think, or something like that. Um, and I was concerned that the hundred wouldn't cool down before it got uh, too bright to observe or that I would set it up and have to sit inside for an hour while it cooled. And I just wanted to take some looks and go back to bed. Um, so I just took the 60 out. Which was good because I wanted to test a few things. So I put that uh, Bader ClickLock adapter on the focuser to use two inch um, diagonals and accessories. But really, I'm just using a two inch diagonal on it with, with my two inch and other eyepieces. That is a beautiful piece of gear, the Bader ClickLock. Eh?
1: Love it. It is so, it just works. You know? Boy, <laughs> and it works is- so well.
0: i i can't believe it so i've used a lot of telescopes over the years and um when i bought the tac 60 i went and spent a fair bit of money and had a custom feather touch made which is pretty killer and i like it an awful lot so i'm not gonna knock it i'm glad i did it but if i was to do it again i don't know i think i would just get the Bader two-inch adapter because i believe i paid i can't remember I got it from europe i think it was like 94 euros or no, it wasn't even that. I think it was 49 euros came to like $74 Canadian. It was super inexpensive considering what you get, which is the ability to take a one and a quarter inch telescope to a two inch telescope. And um, that usually costs you uh, some pain in getting a new uh, focuser. And usually you're going to spend hundreds of dollars for that. Anyway, even the cheapest one that that I bought is $150 Canadian uh typically you're gonna spend more to, to put a focuser on it on attack. And uh boy, this is super slick. And then of course you got to take the old focuser off and put the new focuser on, which you know it can be problematic because it can involve some some realignment of, of the optics, though I've been freely lucky with that. Um, but I'll tell you the Bader adapter is deadly, it's inexpensive and it just works. And I love the way that you can just back it off and change the angle of the, uh, of the diagonal. I just love that. I thought in practice, I was one of the main reasons why I was so hesitant to go that route is I didn't think it would work well. It just seemed like a good idea in concept only, but Bader nailed this one. I'd like the Bader gear, some stuff more than others. This one is the best thing they've ever made in my opinion.
1: It's, it's incredible, um, it yeah. and it works. It works exceptionally well with undercuts, which I was a little worried about. Yeah, and you know, I I think you got a pretty good price on yours because I think it usually retails for around ninety dollars US, but still, you know, fairly insignificant when it gives you that two inch ability. Um, but you know, here's another indication of how good it is: is I recently ordered the uh, two inch to one and a quarter inch adapter uh, because on my tax sometimes I'll use my prism. Uh, which is inch and a quarter. Yeah, and the that little adapter. You know, you can get you know adapters like that for probably twenty five dollars. Uh, I think this cost another eighty to hundred dollars, but it just works so well. It's worth it to me because it's it locks it in there. You barely have to rotate it. Like I've used some other click locks where you're just cranking on that like that ring. You know. To yeah, that's that's and, what uh, I imagine.
0: That's how I imagine it would work and like it's almost like i feel like the name is wrong i think they they i I feel like it, it needs it should have a different name because it doesn't in my mind it doesn't really click lock that's not no. really what it's doing and to me i thought oh it's gonna like click and then like i don't like any sound like um i just don't like sound we're observing and i could just imagine like switching things out and it clicking and uh, it just seemed kind of chintzy and then when I got it, it does. And it just, it's like a, they should call it the friction fit or something. Um, Cause that's, well, that's yeah. how it works. Right. It's this, it's, and it's, and it's beautiful. It just frictions down and it's a perfect design. And then it just holds it super steady. And then like, when I want to change it, I just grab it and just, just very gently. Like there's not a lot of force involved. They've, they've just got it. Uh, they've just got a tweak. Just so, um, cause you and I both don't like any kind of gimmicky accessories that require additional futzing around at night. So it has to remove something in order for it to be a benefit, at least to me and I think for you as well to be in regular use. As soon as it adds a step or anything else, it's out of the kit pretty much for us. I think I think that's totally. Fair. that's a fair assessment. And this removes um, one of the steps in putting the diagonal in and then making the adjustment. Cause you don't have to play, with your um, your locking adapter screw, you just don't have to play with that that much. So it's got it, but it, the way that it works is it actually removes that step. So this is a net benefit to my observing. I can observe a little bit faster. It's a little bit smoother, and I feel that it actually holds it in the telescope better. So triple threat, less than hundred dollars. This is worth owning.
1: Well, oh, there's a quad threat to that actually. <laughs> a quad. It's- well, yeah. Like, so it has the little like click lock kind of knob, you know, that you mm. can grab and rotate, but it has like a knurled grip around the whole thing, which yeah, for exactly. you and I, when it's, when it turns cold and we're wearing gloves, you or don't not. have to take your gloves off to undo a little tension screw right. and then do it back up. You just grab this thing, I twist none it. Of that. it. Yeah. Like it works in all, uh, all weather too, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, they nailed it. This this is the this, in my opinion, Bader's done some good things. Um, some of the stuff is excellent. Some of it is, and I'm and maybe I just haven't used it or seen it used properly. But but this thing is the easiest. It's the hardest thing to explain that works the best, and it it does work the best out of anything. I like their stuff. Um, this thing really makes me a fan, and I think they've priced it appropriately. I think it's probably worth about twice what they charge for at least. And maybe it is. I mean, maybe I just got a good deal because um I don't know. Like I really like telescope service out of Europe. I've bought stuff from them in the past. They've always been really good. You pay more for the shipping. I found the pricing is a little bit better. So in my mind it's a little bit of a wash. Um and they, they often carry some stuff that I just can't really get anywhere else here in, in Canada. So um and then if I'm ordering, I'll just order a few more items. I think you can get the Bader click locks just about anywhere, but I was getting I think i I can't remember I didn't get that when I was buying the t s flat but uh anyhow, that is an awesome, awesome accessory. so I was trying that out last night, and I was actually using it on the TAC focuser, which I had replaced with the feather touch focuser and and I've pretty much just run feather touch focusers. i'm gonna say this, the TAC focuser is not as good as the feather touch focuser in my opinion <laughs> so For sure yeah yeah i, I, I don't there's think
1: there's no argument there
0: yeah, and I do like it. I think it's adequate, and I kind of find that is the way with, um, I guess, I don't want to say non-performance because I guess focusing is performance-related, but non-optical performance and Takahashi equipment is they, they will make it robust and adequate. Plus, like it, it works. It works just as good or maybe slightly better than it needs to, and then that's it. And they just stop putting money and effort into it. Um, so I think their focusers are good. I don't like the plastic focuser knobs, and I really, I really kind of would like a double speed focuser. But you know, I I got by fine. I'm f five point nine on the on the sixty millimeter, and it was it was fine. Like it's just better than adequate. So, and that's kind of the way it is. Like I think Takashi optics are. You know, they're the best, in my opinion, that some of the best optics I've looked through. So they, they nail the optics. Everything else is very performance, very overbuilt and it, it works and it works better than it needs to. And then it's just like full stop, right? Not super heavy on the bells and whistles beyond the, beyond the optical performance. So, so anyway, so I was testing that and I was testing out the Bader contrast filter I did a comparison between the beta contrast filter and the Celestron Mars filter on Mars oh. through the 60, um, and then I, I used the contrast filter on Venus as well. And I also took a look at uh, the Pleiades just just for fun. Um, I was using the Pentax 3.5, so that gives me like around close to 102 power on the 60 millimeter. Which to me, this is about max power, maximum power on a sixty millimeter telescope. So as I as I sent you in my uh, in my text there, you you can see um, the feature on Mars. It kind of looks more like an X. Like I actually drew this without a red light. I I drew it by only the light of the sky. Um, but that's the Certus Major region.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of detail. That looks amazing. Do you mind if I, I tweet that out?
0: Well. I'm going to redo these. If if you said it's amazing and then people saw it, I think they would say it looks like a blurry X and it does like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess maybe I should quantify that a little bit. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's an incredible observation with the 60 millimeter telescope. I think, you know, to pull some of that kind of detail, that's pretty good.
0: And the one thing that I noticed with uh, with my sketching and uh, it, it's just the the matter of doing it under dark skies is I don't see the tip of the pencil where it contacts with the paper, especially like often I'm trying to do sketching now without light at all. And it's really hard for me to tell if I'm dragging the pencil over the paper. So you can see there's a couple like sort of erroneous lines. Like if you took those out, I think, and I could I can erase them out. Um but I kind of left them in just because I I decided when I goofed up on the polar cap that I would, I would just redo it anyway. And then I think though, there's, there's a little bit of that dragging on, uh, on the Venus one. And then I, I cut the cusp a little too hard too. Um, But the Venus one is a little bit more accurate, I think, um, in, in how it looks. I I was kind of able to get things dialed in a little bit more. And of course it was getting lighter out. Uh, by that point as well, but the really neat part, and really what I was, what I was really excited about last night, was that, um, and I may have mentioned this uh, maybe ten or fifteen podcasts ago when we were talking a lot about Venus in the spring, is that I I like to draw these uh, brighter and darker regions on Venus and, and make some good Venusian observations, and I had noticed these uh, bright cusps in particular on the on the southern. Uh, sort of polar region and i was thinking about the mars polar cap at the time and so i was really excited um, for this point when mars is close enough and venus is high enough and i can kind of go and i was going back and forth between the two looking at the bright cusp on venus and looking at the martian polar cap um and I really like that. I, that was something I had decided I wanted to do back in the spring. And, and I did make those observations last night. Um, I actually think that the bright cusp on Venus is easier to see than the Martian polar cap. Um, so it's kind of surprising that that people uh, people often don't report those those bright features on Venus. Definitely. I, I think definitely it is a little bit easier to see because I was able to kind of get it, draw it. And I kind of had to mess around with Mars a bit and kind of misdraw it here in in order to, to kind of get in my mind what, what it should look like. Um, but I'll say this, uh, the, let's see, I think, I think contrast booster, I think it worked a little bit better on Mars than the Mars filter. Now here's the thing that I found with the Mars filter from Celestron. Uh, it, it cut out like some of the atmospheric turbulence and the scope cooled down. So when I first got it out I found that the contrast filter um didn't work as well as the Mars filter. Um but when I put the put the Mars filter in it it kind of almost like steadied up the scene and I was able to get a slightly sharper focus uh to Mars. Um mm-hmm. but as the scope cooled and the conditions maybe stabilized a little bit more as we get closer to dawn I did find that contrast booster just, just edged it out. Um, But I I found it good to go back and forth between the two. I'm happy I own both the Mars filter and the contrast booster. If I had to own one, uh, I think that contrast booster definitely uh, has a little bit of magic in it as well. Another product from Bader. This is becoming like a bit of a Bader uh, podcast, but uh, I think that Bader, uh, what is it called? Bader instruments or whatever
1: yeah, some, I'm not sure. Bader Planetarium, I think. Bader
0: Planetarium, yeah. Um, Again, I, I think that they have a winner with that uh, contrast booster, and I don't think it was too expensive. I think they're what, like ninety bucks or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of all of the filters uh, that you can buy, they're it's pretty reasonable. Like it's less than a ultra high contrast or an O three, like the deep sky stuff are yeah. way more. So.
0: And I've, I've read, I think you and I even talked about this. We've read some of the same stuff from, from other experienced observers saying that, you know, who, who have gotten it as well uh, say that it does sort of edge out all the other filters. Um, yeah, I I think so. I think it does. I think, I think definitely uh, you can get away with just owning the beta contrast uh, booster filter um, just based on my, my month of observing with it. Even I haven't, I haven't taken out any of my other filters. I'll probably keep them. I'm sure there's like instances maybe where they work, but I was kind of surprised on Mars last night, where at first definitely the Mars filter pulled ahead uh, before the scope cooled when the conditions were really crappy. So I think that in very poor conditions, I think the Mars filter, which maybe I should say this, it definitely cuts way more light, and it, it brings a different cast to Mars. I kind of like it. It's sort of like a pinky... Salmony, orangey, and it makes it very red. Like, I, I almost went and got my wife. She would have killed me if I got her up at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> though. But, but it, like, if if you wanted to like impress them, and I'm going to do this once it comes around further, it looks really impressive. Like through that filter, um, just the color tones. Like it looks, it kind of looks like what you want Mars to look like. Um, so, like if I'm showing it to people, I'm going to use that Mars filter. Just because I think it gives it a little bit of a wow factor, um, and it did it did definitely make the uh, the darker features stand out more uh, without a filter. Yeah, it's a little bit better than the no filter in bad conditions. It was better than the contrast booster, and as the conditions improved, the contrast uh, booster just it uh, definitely pulled pulled ahead of it. So anyway, so that was sort of a fun little little comparison. Um, I did not use my extender on the 60. So my 60 millimeter Takahashi can take the 1.7 extender and turn it into uh, an F10 telescope from an F5.9 slash F6. Um, and with without the filters, there's a fair bit of color in that telescope on Mars. I, have, I had read that before I used it. I've done a lot of observing with the 60. I haven't observed Mars with it though. And uh wow, it is not a great Marscope. I gotta say, it's kinda disappointing. Now I've heard that people say you put the extender in and it fixes it up, but uh I do have a little bit of a challenge because that's gonna give me more power than I want. I really like the hundred power in the 60, and that's gonna give me like 120 power with the five millimeter. So I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna get up. I'm going to start getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, And
1: you're, uh, you're, a, you're a warrior.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I like to make those observations. And I think that the sky, that's when the sky is the best. Cause you're, it you're is. dealing. Yeah. You're dealing with the city is settled down. The sky is settled down. That's I think when you've got the best chance and you know, I can't stress this enough. I, you know, I'll get up. I'll look if the conditions are poor. I'll just go back to bed. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm just going to observe from right here. Um, and if it's good, I'll just go out. I'll do like, I'm not going to stay up all night. I'm going to do like 30 minutes. I'm going to go back to bed. And to be honest, I sleep really well after I observe, I'll have some really weird dreams. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I can, I can roll out and observe and do 30 minutes and go back to bed and you know, it's fine. It's not not really a big deal. So, cause often I do wake up for 30 or 40 minutes at night around that time anyway. So it's not really, uh, going to bother my, my life too much. Although today I, I slept until like 9.30. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes when I have to get up at seven for work, but I'm sure it will be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. All right. So those are kind of my observations uh, from last night. I got to clean up these these sketches and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, well, I think we probably, uh, I think this has ended up being a long podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think,
1: I think that's an episode.
0: That sounds good. Well, Shane, how can people stay in touch with us?
1: You can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. Uh, We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening.